0: right, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4. We are taking on the daunting task of finishing the last two verses of Ephesians this morning and starting the first two of chapter 5. Paul has been teaching us how to live a worthy Christian life. We spent the first three chapters of Ephesians looking at the riches of that we have in Christ, and that's the whole theme of, of Ephesians, walking in the riches of His grace. And so as we have been learning how to walk that out now practically, Paul has taught us that if we're going to do that, if we're going to live a worthy Christian life, we need to reject the self-life and embrace the kind of life that God recreated us for. It says in verse 24 that you put on the new man which after God is created. We were created to be like God in righteousness and true holiness, to act and have an attitude like He does, to be like Him. And so Paul, in these last few verses, has been getting up close and personal with us on how our conduct needs to change. Paul is addressing these various areas of our personal conduct that needs to change by following a kind of a three-phase pattern. First off, he'll tell us we need to stop doing something we've been doing. Then second, he'll tell us we need to let God rework our thinking on that topic. And then finally, he says we need to start Acting differently. And so uh, we've been looking at anger and lying and stealing and communication. And this morning we're going to look at our attitude towards others. So, verse 31 through verse 2 it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So at the very beginning here, he says, let all these things be put away from you. The word there, put away, it means to withdraw money from a bank. It means to carry away what you have raised. In other words, you raise this amount of money, and you deposit it in the bank, and he says, take it out and get rid of it. That's what that word put away means. We have, as human beings, the capacity to store all sorts of things in our hearts. God created us to fill our hearts with his attributes, for our hearts to be like him. The self-life, however, decides to store whatever we want in our hearts, To say, well, I want to put this in here, and so I'm going to deposit it in there. Paul tells the Ephesians that there are certain attitudes towards others that they have deposited into the bank of their hearts. And now those attitudes need to be withdrawn and carried away. So, what attitudes towards others do we need to withdraw from our hearts and carry away? Well, first off, he says, all bitterness. And that word all applies to every word here in the sentence. It means any and all kinds of. Any and all kinds of, first off, it says bitterness. What is bitterness? Well, it's sharp, intense resentment. One Greek linguist said, described it this way. He said, bitterness is that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things, that makes him sour, crabbed, and repulsive in his general demeanor, that brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. We need to withdraw all kinds of that. That needs to all go. If it's in our heart, it needs to be withdrawn immediately. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where that bitterness is influencing the way you talk and the way your face looks. I know I have. You know, there are times when Bev will look at me and she goes, you look like you're going to kill somebody. That's something that starts internally. It's something that starts in here that we, because we deposit bitterness, resentment, sharp, intense resentment into our hearts. Now, how do you know if you've deposited bitterness into your heart? Well, is there anyone that you think about right now? And that quote that I read in some way describes your internal response. My best guess is that there may have even been someone who immediately popped into your mind as I started reading the quote. Or even as I said the word bitterness, that immediately a face popped into your mind and all those sour feelings just started to come into the surface That's how you know you've deposited bitterness into your heart, and you need now to withdraw it immediately. There is no other option for it but to withdraw it and to carry it off. You need to put it off, put it away. The next thing that he mentions we need to remove, withdraw, and carry away, he says, is wrath, all kinds of wrath, and any and all kinds of anger. The word wrath here is a different word than the two words for anger we saw in verse 26. This word means a violent outbreak of anger that soon subsides like boiling water that overflows. I don't know about you, but sometimes like I'll be cooking in the kitchen and I'm boiling water and my cooking in the kitchen usually means I don't remain in the kitchen, which is why I'm not the best cook because often I'll be like, oh, I need to go do this. And then all of a sudden you start hearing that sound, By the time you get there, the water has already boiled over and now it's threatening to do so again, right? That's what this word describes. It's that initial when it gets to the boiling point, it rises up and it spills over. And then it's done, but it's ready to bubble up again at any moment. That's what this word for wrath describes. It is this concept of when everything's fine, but all of a sudden something happens and boom! The water was all right there at the surface, and now it spills over, and we have our little moment, and then we go back to normal. He says that is something you've deposited in your heart that you need to withdraw. The word for anger here is the same word used for anger in verse 26. It just means to be furious, and it refers to the emotional displeasure that is aroused inside you when you perceive that something wrong has been done. In other words, this is this thought that if we've deposited anger into our hearts, it's the concept that we're easily offended and ready to lose it. Ready to just become furious with someone when they do something wrong rather than approach it like we read about in Galatians chapter 6. If you are someone who is easily offended or easily loses your cool, or you, you all of a sudden can just burst off and have it rush over and then you just go back to life. That means you've deposited things into your heart that cause it to be there. You need to withdraw that and carry it away. You cannot continue to let that fester inside your heart because it's going to keep coming out. I remember, I mean, look at these things, bitterness, wrath, anger. I remember when I first was able to start recognizing bitterness in my own heart. I had just gotten to Bible college and I had some weird ideas, doctrinally, and I was sitting down with a bunch of students, so it was my own fault, because I said, well, they look like the, the intellectual type, the smart guys, the spiritual guys. I'm going to sit down with them and we'll get into it. And so I sat down and, and man, they let me have it. They were just not nice at all. <laughs> like, I definitely bit off more than I could chew, and they were very unkind and rude to me. I asked for it, but the point was is that it hurt. And I'm not the type of person that generally gets hurt and just kind of goes and cries in a corner. I'm the type of person that if I get hurt, I want to hurt back. And so my thought as I'm sitting at the table was, is I want to, I want to make some people's mouths have less teeth in them than they currently have. But I knew I couldn't do that because I get kicked out of Bible college and that would only make them right. So my pride, more important than my Christ-like character, decided to withhold. But every time I saw them, I had my own little personal punching bag inside my heart. I I call it like a cage you kind of keep people in. They come by and you just get irritated inside. And while they're walking by, hey, but inside you're going, do, 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 do. That's what we do. We take them out of the cage and beat them up and put them back in. But they're not even, they're clueless. Doesn't affect them at all. And then lo and behold, it was just like within the week, there was a teaching on forgiveness, teaching on bitterness and I remember the teacher explained, he said, you know, when you've got that in your heart, you know it because you see somebody, and you just immediately, all that stuff comes to the surface, the scowl on your face, the words have venom in them. And he said, you need to make a choice to forgive that person, to choose not to be bitter anymore. And then you need to ask God to do a work of forgiveness in your heart so that when you see them, that you don't have those things. And he says, you'll know when God's completed that work of forgiveness in your heart, when You see them and you spontaneously wish them well. And I thought, man, I don't know if I'm going to get there. Because every time I see them, I just want to hit them. And so, but every time I had those feelings, those emotions, when I thought of them and they would immediately, all the yuckiness would rise up. I would say, Lord, I choose to forgive them. Please do a work of forgiveness in my heart. Sometimes the next time I said that was just 30 seconds later. But I remember the day that it happened. I saw one of them across the way. And my first thought was, oh, Lord, bless that guy. I know he's got this going on in his life right now. Be with him in that. I was like, what? The same thing is with anger. I remember there was a time I, I think I told this story a couple weeks ago, so I won't belabor the whole story again. But I, my dad had an anger problem before he got saved. It was very violent outbursts, not physically, but verbally, just very violent emotions. And it was terrifying. You know, if you've ever been in that experience as a child, you know how terrifying that is. And I swore I'd never be that kind of dad. And I wasn't with my first child. But as we had more kids, for whatever reason, I guess that makes things more complicated, of course, I started becoming very irritable and angry. And I was that person that was always at the boiling point. At any moment, if there was a wrong thing that was done, it'd just be like, it all comes spilling out, and then I'd go back to normal life. And I remember Bev came to me one day, and she goes, Will, you're so angry all the time. And I had to come to the Lord and go, Lord, what happened? Why am I so angry? I had deposited things in there. How would I deposit it, or why did I deposit things there? Well, James chapter 4 tells us how how anger and wrath get into our hearts in the first place. Look at James chapter 4 with me, verses 1 and 2. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, earlier in his letter, James has said, Now, brethren, count it all joy when you come into various temptations, various trials... But then he explains what happens when we don't count it all joy, when we, when we don't get what we want. And he explains that it's these outbursts of violence and anger. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, from whence comes wars and fightings among you? Do they not come from hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. We get angry because we want something and we can't get it even if that thing that we want is good. Either way, we respond in anger when we begin storing up We say, well, that's not right. I should have that. It's when you have that child that's disrespectful to you and you say, they should respect me. I'm their mom. I'm their dad. And you internally begin to deposit anger in your heart. It goes, that's wrong. That's what anger is. That's wrong. Now I'm furious. And when you keep repeating those ideas over and over in your mind, this isn't fair, that's not right, I should have that, why can't I have that? You store up anger in your heart. And eventually, if you keep storing it up, it just starts bubbling over. Part of putting off the self-life means letting go of the idea that I can throw a tantrum when I don't get what I want. That somehow I can make someone give it to me if I just coerce them enough through my anger, and my wrath. We don't think that when we do it, but it's what we're doing. Part of putting off the self-life means deciding to deal with disappointment correctly. And if you've never made that decision, now is a good day to do it. To say, Lord, I'm gonna put this off. I'm gonna withdraw it out of my heart. I've been depositing this for a while. It's time to withdraw and carry it away. So you can change my thinking towards disappointment. You ever had your kid do something, and you just kind of like, oh, I can't believe they just did that. Instead of telling yourself, I can't believe they just did that, think, I've done that. I did that when I was a kid, and I do it as an adult toward God. I'm not owed anything. I need to be the adult here. I need to handle this disappointment I'm experiencing right now correctly. It's an opportunity to help my child with their need. And then you can teach and discipline them, not in anger. Paul says we need to put away, withdraw from ourselves also, any and all kinds of, he says, clamor and evil speaking. Both of them have to do with communication. Clamor, it means verbal brawling, shouting or loud speech while you argue. Now, I have heard some couples claim, they're all lying, We don't ever argue. To that, I would say, you probably don't mean you don't ever disagree. You mean you're probably mean we don't ever argue incorrectly, which is possible. That is possible. My very first pastor used to say that if you don't ever argue as a married couple, one of you is not needed. And that's a true statement because the idea is you, when you get married, you become one flesh. We tell couples in their premarital counseling, you're going to become one flesh, but you're not going to become one spirit. Me and Bev are not Weverly. We're not now new, one new entity that has its own relationship. We're a mind-melded relationship with God. Our spirit, we have individual spirits, though. We have individual relationships with God. It means we're at different places with the Lord. That means that she might see things that I'm being hard-hearted about. I might see things that she's being hard-hearted about. In the same token, we don't become one soul. Again, we don't all of a sudden become the same intellect, will, and emotion. She's a different person than I am. I'm a different person than she is. Some of those personality traits are good, and some of them are flaws. And so we partner in each other's sanctification in both those areas. We're one flesh. So now God sees the plan he has for our lives is the same. We're going in the same direction in the sense that two bodies still, but we're one together moving in the same direction. Supposed to be. But in the other areas, we help each other on our way to heaven. That's gonna produce some conflict, right? That's gonna mean there's gonna be times when there's going to need to be arguments, but they need to be had correctly, which means not with verbal brawling or shouting or loud speech. And it should certainly not include evil speaking. Evil speaking means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm their reputation. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. You can jot that down and look it up later, because I'm just going to read it real quick. But when he was talking to the Pharisees, he said, Oh, generation of vipers, how could you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Well, what's treasure? treasure is this thing you deposit in the bank, right? So, the idea here is he's saying you've deposited things, and out of your mouth is going to come what you've deposited into your heart. And so, if I've deposited this idea that it's fine for me to shout in an argument or to verbally brawl with someone to say, you know what, you know, I'm going to say this because I know that will shut them up. Well, I'm going to bring this up again because that's how I know how to get him. Or they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. Verbal brawling. Paul says that has no place in our hearts. When I speak to someone or about someone, like Paul describes in these two words, it's because I've deposited something evil in my heart towards them. And so if you find either of these forms of communication are part of your life, whatever that is, that that bad attitude towards them, that wrong heart towards them, you need to pull it out, withdraw it, and you need to carry it off. Do you need to do that this morning? And then lastly, Paul says, with all malice. So, remove these things, and then the word with means together with all kinds of malice, any and all kinds of malice. Malice just means a feeling of hostility or dislike towards someone. It just means you have a bad heart towards them. All of the attitudes that Paul lists in this verse are linked to some kind of feeling of hostility or dislike that we've deposited in our heart towards a specific person, or maybe many specific persons, or even maybe a group of persons. All of that, that malice is part of the self-life, and it needs to be withdrawn. This is especially true if it's toward a brother or sister in Christ or a group in the church statements like, everyone in the women's ministry, they're just this way. Everyone in the youth ministry, can't they ever get off their phones? Why are they texting each other? They're sitting next to each other. It's because they're sending each other memes. That's what they do all day. And if you don't know what a meme is, go find one of them. (laughs) Jesus did not teach us that it was okay to harbor feelings of hostility or dislike toward each other. He didn't teach us that. Instead, Jesus assembled a group of men who under any other roof would have been at each other's throats. Think about it. You put those guys in the same room and under any other circumstances, and it's not going to end well. And I'm so glad Jesus, he did not look around and he's like, all right, let me see, I need 11 more. I've got Bob here so far. Let, no, I can't pick. James, because he's a zealot and Bob is a Pharisee. They are going to kill each other. Nope, he grabbed people that were totally opposite in, in their views on life, in the things that they thought were important in life, where they were at in life, and he taught them to love one another. He taught them that people would know that they're his disciples by that love that they had for each other. If you're holding on to malice towards any person or any group in the body of Christ, you need to let it go. You're a Christian. We follow Jesus now, not ourselves. We do things His way. Now, when we remove these things from our heart, remember, that's just the start. We need to then let God change our attitudes towards those people or towards people in general. That's the start of the road to putting on new attitudes, and so verse 32, he says, and, so put away these things, carry those away, but now need to start depositing these things. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That word be ye, it means you must keep on becoming or you must be becoming. In other words, it's not that everything is all Okay, I'm going to stop doing this, and now I'm just going to be tenderhearted and kind and, and forgiving to everybody. No, you, but you need to start embracing that path. You need to be on the road to becoming those things. That's what we need to put on. And what does it mean to be kind? It, it just means it's the opposite of harsh. It means to be gracious, to be mild, to be pleasant. In other words, be becoming nice. Jesus is Nice. Secondly, it says tender-hearted. It means compassionate, sympathetic. And it means when you see someone that has a need, your heart goes out to them regardless of why they ended up in that place of need. It's the exact opposite of, this word for tender-hearted is, is the exact opposite of when you see somebody and they're in a trial and you go, oh, they got here because of this. It's the exact opposite of that. It's where your heart goes out to them, you go, that stinks. To be the situation they're in right now, that's gotta be really hard. My heart goes out to him. That's what it means to be tender-hearted. Be becoming more like that, Paul says. And then thirdly, becoming, he says, more like someone who forgives each other. Be becoming forgiving toward one another. The word here for forgiveness is a little bit different than our normal word in the New Testament. It means to cancel a debt to treat the offending party graciously. What is grace? It's when you give someone something they don't deserve. Cancel of that. To what degree? Even as to the same degree that God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. This is where the mindset has to change where we gotta let God renew our mind. Why are we kind towards someone who's wronged us? Why are we tenderhearted to someone who's in trouble? Why do we forgive others? Because God forgave us. We were the offending party first. And not only did God wipe away our guilt, but he treated us graciously all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so here's where our mindset needs to change. I don't necessarily forgive someone or be kind to them or be tenderhearted towards them because, well, God forgave me. It's because of what Jesus did for all of us that we too need to be becoming more gracious towards those who offend us. We need to be becoming more like our God, which is what verse 1 says. Therefore, because God has forgiven not just you, but all of us, therefore, be ye followers of God as dear children. You must be becoming followers of God. Like or to the degree of dear children. The word followers, it means to be an imitator. Oxford Dictionary says the word imitator means to copy someone, to follow a model. We need to copy and follow God like dear children do. Dear children means just children who are greatly loved. Because of what Jesus did for all of us, if you're here and you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you're in Christ. You're part of God's family. And that means that everyone who's done that in here, because of what Jesus did for us, we are now God's kids. If you're in Christ, you're his son, you're his daughter. And we are greatly loved by him. That's what we spent the first three chapters studying of Ephesians, right? And when a child knows that they are loved and has profound love for their father, what do they often do? They imitate their father's behavior. It's always cute, my kids. You'd watch them, and you know you're doing stuff, and then they start trying to copy you. You stand a certain way, and then they're standing a certain way. And Bev would usually kind of elbow me, and she's like, "Look," and I, you know, you get a good chuckle. That only happens when a child knows they're loved. They look up to the person that loves them. Well, guys, we know we're loved, (laughs) right? We've been forgiven of all of our sins. Our brothers and sisters have been forgiven of all of their sins too we need to be becoming like that dearly loved child who copies their father, specifically in context, in the area of forgiveness. In particular, how God forgives us. God forgives us because of what Jesus did for us, which means we need to become those who follow God's example by not just forgiving others, but forgiving them because God forgave them. It's not that we forgive others because we just because we've been forgiven. We forgive others because God has forgiven them. That changes how we look at forgiveness, doesn't it? Do you ever wonder why Jesus said, like you have all these amazing things that Jesus says and we have his consistent testimony that salvation is by faith, right? But then you have these moments where Jesus says, yeah, but if you do this, you're not going to heaven. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) He has a few things where he mentions it. And you know one of the areas he talks about that is forgiveness. What does he say? He goes, if you don't forgive, God doesn't forgive. Like, wait a second, Jesus. But he said, you came, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. If I put my trust in that, I'm forgiven, right? Yeah. But if you don't forgive, God doesn't forgive. Why? Because when I choose not to forgive someone, it, it shows I have a fundamental misunderstanding of salvation. I don't understand salvation. When I refuse to forgive someone, I don't understand salvation. Because when I refuse to forgive someone, what I am telling that person is, what Jesus did on the cross was good enough for my sin, but not good enough for yours. I am actually better than you, and therefore, my sin can be forgiven, but yours can't. Therefore, I won't forgive you. And it shows that my ideas on salvation is actually a works righteousness salvation and not a salvation by faith alone. That's why forgiveness is so important. Because when I refuse to give it, it means I do not understand my own salvation. And so when we forgive, it's not just because God forgave us and I need to do the same for others. Yes, that's true. But I need to forgive others because if they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, God's already forgiven them too. Just like he's already forgiven me. When we come to faith in Christ, does God forgive us only if he knows we'll never sin again? I'm glad that's not true. (laughs) Does God forgive us only as long as we didn't do fill in the blank? I'm also glad that's not true. You and I need to let God renew our thinking on the issue of forgiveness and why we give it to others. And we need to acknowledge that our ideas on forgiveness may not be correct, because only then can we live out the gracious attitudes Paul tells us to put on in verse thirty-two. You can't say, "Well, I'm just going to go out and be becoming nice." If you're withholding in your heart because you think, "Well, they did this," you're not going to be tender-hearted. You're not going to be forgiving towards them. You're not going to be nice. Now you might be thinking, but doesn't God say now that we're believers we have to confess our sin to be forgiven? First John 1 9. But if, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is true. But that in context has to do with our fellowship with God, not our salvation. Look at first John. Because I will frequently hear people say, Well, they didn't confess their sin to me, I don't need to forgive them. I'm very glad that's not how my salvation works. 1st John chapter 1 John makes it very clear the topic is that he's discussing here In 1st John 1 beginning in verse 6 he says if we say that we have what fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not the truth but if we walk in the light and he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin So the idea here is that if we are walking in darkness, if we're living in sin and we're not confessing it to God, whatever, he's like, we're not in good fellowship with God. God can't be like, hey, Will, let's talk about how you handle that situation with your son. And I kind of just go, yeah, well, you know, I really don't want to talk about that, God. So let's talk about church. I'm excited to go to church this Sunday. I'm really excited to preach this Sunday. The Lord's not just going to be like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about church. No, our relationship is going to kind of be in an impasse at that moment, right? Like, the Lord's going to be like, no, we need to talk about what just happened. And if I'm not going to do that, I'm going to be out of fellowship with God. Like, our relationship's not going to be good. On the other hand, if I walk in the light, as He is in the light... I come before God. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not excusing anything. I'm like, oh, Lord, you're right. I didn't handle that correctly. How do I fix this? What do I need to do? And then I confess my sin. I'm like, oh, Lord, what is this wrong? And I don't want to do that anymore. And so please cleanse me. Please wash me. I, I want to be in fellowship with you and I want to be in fellowship with others. Well, the Bible says if we walk in that light. We do have fellowship one with another and his blood is just continually washing us. We're, we're in a good place. If we say we have no sin, the Lord's convicting us. We go, I didn't do anything wrong. He says we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. And you're not going to have a good fellowship with God because every relationship that's meaningful is based on honesty. On the other hand, if we confess our sins, which means to say the same thing about them that God says about them, it says that he is faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the other hand, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. All meaningful relationships are based on trust, which requires honesty. We can't pretend everything is fine between us and God if we're living in darkness. But that doesn't mean we lose our salvation every time we sin and we get our salvation back every time we confess our sin. The same is true for our relationship with others. We are not allowed to get bitter, angry, hard-hearted, or have unkind attitudes towards someone if they don't confess their sin to us or they don't repent of it. We don't forgive them only if they confess their sin or repent. We do it because of what Christ has already done for them. None of the self-life attitudes that Paul lists in verse 31 are permitted because someone else didn't meet certain criteria in my relationship with them. I need to put all those wrong attitudes off and I need to put on the gracious attitudes of verse 32. I need to be becoming more like my heavenly father. Now, people often confuse forgiveness with trust. I can forgive someone and that doesn't mean I trust them. <laughs> I can be kind and tender hearted and towards someone that doesn't mean I trust them. And so if they don't acknowledge their sin and they don't repent, then That may be difficult to have a trusting, meaningful relationship with them. Doesn't mean everything's fine in your relationship with them just because you forgive them, but forgiving them sets you up to treat that person not just like God treats them, but also like Jesus treated them. Look at verse 2. Not only are we to imitate God like dearly beloved children, but we're also, it says, to walk in love. In addition to being forgiving like God or becoming more forgiving like God, we also need to be constantly becoming in our conduct walking in the sphere of love. We need to constantly be ordering our behavior and conducting our life in the realm, in the sphere of love. And that word love, of course, is agape, unconditional devotion. Well, what is the behavior and conduct that fits into the realm of agape love. Well, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, love is patient, love is kind, right? Love does not, I think it's next says, brag on itself. Love does not brag on itself. It's not arrogant. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It does not keep a record of wrongs does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the realm of love, that type of conduct, that type of attitude. One other area that the Bible describes as the realm of love is in Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, goodness, self-control. I think kindness. I think I forgot kindness. Kenneth we said the saint is to order his behavior or his manner of life within the sphere of this divine supernatural love that's produced in his heart by the Holy Spirit. And when this kind of love becomes the deciding factor in their choices and the motivating power in their actions, they will then be walking in love. This is what we need to be becoming like because that's how Jesus loved us. It says... Walk in love as, which means to the degree that Christ also has loved us. That word loved there, it's in the aorist tense, which means Paul's taking a snapshot picture like a Polaroid. Anybody remember what those are? Like a Polaroid. And then he's pulling out the Polaroid and he goes this. That's what the aorist tense means. Well, what's the Polaroid shot that he's showing us? How did Christ love us? Romans 5.8. But God proves his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us he says walk in love and you go what does that look like and Paul brings out a picture of the cross like this that guy right there with the spikes through his wrists and his feet crown of thorns in his head with his face purpling and bruised Who, well, even as they were nailing him to that cross said father forgive them and they don't know what they're doing that's what it looks like that's what the realm of love looks like he says love like that love others to this degree, but also love others to this degree. He says, not only did he, as He has loved us, but as He has given Himself or as He gave Himself for us. And then it lists two ways, an offering and a sacrifice. The Bible teaches that Jesus gave Himself for us, means instead of us or on our behalf in substitution for us by His life and by His death, an offering and a sacrifice. The offering refers to those first three offerings in Judaism, in the law, the three free will offerings. One of those wasn't even a blood offering, it was just a, you brought something you cooked and you you baked it for the Lord and you ate some and and he ate some, some burned on the altar, you ate some, and the idea is you were dedicating a period of service to the Lord. Sometimes you bring a peace offering, which means you just want to hang out with the Lord. Then you had the burnt offering where you're just totally surrendering to the Lord. This refers to someone's life, not Death. Jesus' life was on our behalf. The Bible says that his life, his righteous life is attributed to us. He who knew no sin was made for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So when God sees you and me, if you're in Christ, he sees you and me as having fulfilled the law because Christ did. So his, his life was in place of us, not just his death, His life was given in place of us, and then His sacrifice, the trespass offering, the sin offering is what this refers to. His death was a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the price for our sin that we deserved. And it tells us here that both of those, his life and his death, were a sweet-smelling savor. They were an odor uh, that pleased the Lord. They were you know, like I walked in; Bev had just come out of the shower, and I walked into the room, and the whole room just smelled foofy. I was like, ah, I feel like you know I should be running through flower petals and whatever, composing poetry. It was just beautiful in a manly way. <laughs> Don't let. Uh, nah, maybe I should shut up. <laughs> Don't let others steal truly powerful things. I will leave it there. Jesus' life and Jesus' death both pleased God, and both of them were accepted by God. When Jesus lived his life on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did the Father say? It's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's got it right. He did it. Nobody else has, but he did it. And then on the cross... Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It says that he was raised for our justification. In other words, it's proof that God accepted the sacrifice because he rose from the dead. He didn't stay in the tomb. If you were here at our cults teaching on Sunday night, we talked about how Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus died as an offering to the devil that God made a deal with the devil where he said, well, I'll give you my son. You can do whatever you want with him, and that'll be the ransom for everybody that you own. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that Jesus lived a perfect life offered to God, not to anyone else. Offered it to God in substitute for our sin-filled lives. And that perfect life that he lived pleased God and was an acceptable offering for us, The Bible teaches that Jesus died as a sacrifice to the Father, not to the devil. The ransom he paid was to the Father to pay the price for our sins. And the Bible tells us that his sacrifice satisfied all of God's righteous demands for our sin. Jesus, his life and his death, all of it operated in the realm of love towards others. It was all on our behalf. And that is the motivator for why we behave towards others in the realm of love. We love Him because what? He first loved us. And because we love Him, we also choose to behave in a loving way toward others, especially toward one another. So I ask you this morning as we close and the worship team comes up, does this mindset of God's forgiveness describe what you're becoming more like right now? you say, like, what path am I on? Like, where am I moving towards? Are you becoming more like, is your mindset becoming more like God's as it handles, as it deals with forgiveness? Or are you stuffing a bunch of other things into your heart? Do First Corinthians and Christ's sacrificial behavior in his life and his death, do they describe the behavior you're becoming more like? Are you becoming more like First Corinthians 13? Are you becoming more like Jesus in his life and his death? Well, if the answer is no this morning, this morning then is a great day to put off the self-life mindset towards others when they wrong you, to put it off, to not allow bitterness, to not store up bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or evil speaking or malice, to say I'm not going to deposit those things anymore. I'm I'm taking withdrawal today, this morning, Lord. I'm withdrawing these things from my heart and I'm carrying them off. And I'm going to start raising funds in some other area. This morning is a great day to say, Lord, I know my thinking about how to treat others is wrong, and I want you to renew my mind in this area. I choose to yield to the changes you want to make in my thinking to how I treat others. That's a great prayer to pray this morning. This morning is a great day to put on a forgiving mindset and a commitment to a conduct towards others that's in the realm of love. Let's all stand. When we sang that song, you know, Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. (laughs) A thousand hallelujahs. And Lord, I I know the best hallelujah we can give you in that sense of we just want to praise you is when we respond to you when you speak to us. And so this morning, Lord, we we choose to be those who will put off Bitterness, Lord, so we make a choice to withdraw, make a, a withdrawal, a complete withdrawal, all the funds when it concerns bitterness and evil speaking and wrath and anger and malice, clamor towards others, Lord, and we confess to you, Lord, that's not pleasing to you. We want to walk in the light with you. So instead, we choose to say, Lord, renew our thinking, please. Help us to change how we think about forgiveness and even why we forgive. That we do it because you've forgiven them. You've died for them. You lived for them, just like you did all those things for me. We want to understand salvation correctly, Lord, so that we approach forgiveness correctly. Remind us of all that you've done for us and how you've forgiven us. Lord, we choose to put on kindness and tenderheartedness and a forgiving mindset. We choose to imitate you and walk in love this morning. I pray for everyone who's making that those decisions or some variation of those kind of decisions this morning, Lord, that you would change them even as you promise in your word. That you, by your Spirit, would be conforming them into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.